The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They're not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Okay. Today on the lab report, Dr. Paul Anderson. Yeah, naturopathic clinician, educator, author. And a legend in the naturopathic community. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. What are your thoughts on the mellow cup? I have none. What do you mean? I have no thoughts on it's as it relates to the mallow cup. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you? I'm crushing it today. You say that every time, and no. it's just amazing. Sometimes I say I'm living my best life. Oh, you're right. You're right. Um, How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> Thanks for asking. I hope everyone's doing great. This is The Lab Report, brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, a functional medicine podcast where we also talk about things like specialty laboratory testing, integrative therapeutics, and the like. Well, if you want to crush it at life, too, you should probably go to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe to this podcast. Rate, review, download, leave us a review about how Michael's fine. Oh, you're going to judge me for being <laughs> fine, huh? Not is at that all. what's happening? I got to nope. be out there crushing it every single day? No. I Got to be hustling? Got to be brustling every no, day? No, I was making a comment about your Midwestern demeanor. So you're saying Midwesterners can't crush it, is what you're saying. That's that You just alienated the entire middle part of the country where there's all those states that no one can identify one versus oh, the other? No, I'm saying they crush it every day, but they do it in such a laid back, back way that you go, oh, they're fine. Yeah, that's how you do it. That's right. Act like you've been there. You always say that. I do say that. Well, today's a very special episode. We have one of the most beloved naturopathic clinicians. Every speak, every single time I talk to a naturopath, they talk about Dr. Paul Anderson. He is beloved. Uh, he's sort of uh, one of our educators, one of our elders, uh, a ton of wisdom, just a super smart guy, super nice guy, and he's jolly. He kind of reminds me of like my father or my grandfather. Oh, so. there's no greater compliment you can give someone. So with that, let's give Dr. Paul Anderson a call. Well, Michael, I know we're both excited. Yes. We have Dr. Paul Anderson here today. And let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Anderson, though I know you already know him from Bastyr. Yes. Dr. Paul Anderson is a nationally recognized educator and naturopathic physician who has decades of experience treating cancer and complex chronic illness. As head of the interventional arm of the human trial funded by the U.S. National Institutes of Health, Dr. Anderson oversaw research into integrative therapies for cancer patients. Dr. Anderson was the founder of a number of clinics specializing in the care of people with cancer and chronic illness and is now focusing his efforts on training other physicians and writing. His former positions include professor of pharmacology and clinical medicine at Bastyr University and chief of IV services for Bastyr Oncology Research Center. He is co-author of Outside the Box Cancer Therapies with Dr. Mark Stengler and the anthology Success Breakthroughs with Jack Canfield. Dr. Anderson recently released his latest book entitled Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment. And with that, thank you so Welcome. much, Dr. Anderson, for coming on. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah, sounds, uh, sounds like I've done a lot. Yeah. You have. <laughs> well, you have. And that, that kind of leads me into my first question. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Because with your many years of treating patients, training students, training clinicians, and writing, what facet of your career did you or do you find the most rewarding out of those? I know I'm putting you on the spot. Wow. Um, <laughs> you know, really... Uh, there wouldn't be every part without the parts that came before it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really they've all been, I, I've, I've enjoyed every single step. Um, I kind of had an interesting start in my clinical career because prior to, um, uh, prior to becoming a physician, I was, I worked in laboratories and I also taught in, at college. And um, so uh, going to medical school, I was actually teaching at the same time. So I had always been a teacher uh, and I always uh, wanted to continue to do that. And then, you know, as my practice unfolded, I I got very involved with training uh, students and interns. Um, And then that really grew into a lot of the the CME stuff and uh, Mm -hmm. the things I'm doing now. So. You know, the, my ability now to work with doctors and to write and, and try and spread, you know, the, the kind of hard-won lessons I've had in sure. my clinical practices wouldn't happen without all that stuff before. <laughs> That's so true. That That's sense. really profound, too. Yeah. And, you know, just to harken back to your first book, Outside the Box Cancer Therapies, you know, we've both conventional and integrative approaches together that the things that are available to patients facing this cancer diagnosis. Can you explain the role of epigenetics in cancer? Yeah, um, it's uh, that, that's not a deep question at all there. No, it's, it's uh, there's a lot of places. I mean, epigenetics, uh, you know, as you tell students, um, it's everything that's ever happened to you from before you were born until now. And uh, epigenetic triggers are both positive and negative, and they, um, I always think of them as like pushing on your genetics. So you can have genetic code that never gets pushed on and it never manifests. Mm-hmm. But if you have certain genetic code that makes you a little more susceptible to, say, certain uh, maybe dietary influences or uh, certain toxins or other stuff, and then your epigenetics through stressors and through um, maybe disease and toxins and infections and other stuff, uh, so-called press on the genetic code where it's weak, you tend to manifest, mm-hmm. um, you know, what, whatever that does uh, disease-wise. Mm-hmm. And so in looking at, you know, triggers for cancer, if you look at the main ideas around triggers, which are like cancer stem cell uh, theory, metabolomic theory, the thing they all have in common is they all have epigenetic stressors that make them, you know, more pathogenic. So a lot of, whether it's prevention of cancer or treatment or recovery, really what you're manipulating are those epigenetic stressors and trying to push them back towards a happier, healthier, uh, non-stressor 
position. Yeah. That's an interesting yeah. way to look at it. Yeah. yeah. And, and aside from stressors and toxins, like what are some, just a select few nutrients or foods that, that may play a role in these epigenetic triggers? Yeah. So, and, and I think that's, you know, a lot of times we look at, especially genomics from a negative point of view, but yeah. epigenetics can be either <clears throat> very positive and health engendering or very negative uh, and disease engendering. And so, we think of, you know, okay, toxic exposures, uh, you know, infections and all this other stuff. But on the positive side of the ledger, um, a lot of epigenetic controllers are controlled by the stuff that we think of as maybe therapeutic nutrition, which really, you know, originally ought to be part of our diet. Mm -hmm. But things like antioxidant balance. So, you know, having enough oxidation to keep our immune systems funky, but not so much that we're damaging things, mm -hmm. uh, which comes from the balance. Um, nutrients that feed the mitochondria. As the mitochondria get sicker, then the cell becomes, uh, the cell and the nucleus and the genomics become much more, um, I guess, susceptible to negative influences. So, you know, the things that we do to keep the basics of our cells working, the membranes and the organelles and the mitochondria and the nucleus, the more resistant they are to all those negative things. So, um, you know, so you're looking there at real basic nutrients in most of our vitamins and minerals and essential fatty acids and phospholipids, you know, without those, uh, we can't hold the cell together. And if you can't hold the cell together, it falls prey to, you know, the, <laughs> the dark side, the negative aspect yeah. of epigenetics. Um, and, and, you know, it depends where you get people at. Um, I, uh, um, it just, this, this example sticks out in my mind. In the early days of people, patients knowing about methylation problems like MTHFR and other stuff, mm -hmm. um, we would have parents come in and they would both say be homozygous for, you know, MTHFR C677 or something. And they'd be really worried about their children, obviously, because they're homozygous. And what we would counsel them as, you know, the, the child, even though they're homozygous like you, you have the chance by feeding them and mm. giving them, you know, the forms of pre-methylated, folate, and other stuff that are found in diet, plus all polyphenols and that, mm -hmm. to have them not really express that as a problem later in life. You know, you're expressing it because no one knew about it and you didn't maybe get all of that good, you know, happy, healthy nutrition. Mm -hmm. um, growing up and now you're having to supplement you know to kind of turn turn the corner turn stuff off um and it, it was always it, it was nice to see you know their eyes would brighten up and they think oh it's not you know this genomic code isn't a, a sentence to ill health it's yeah. mm -hmm. uh you know the earlier i can intervene with my child the better yeah. um so you know and yeah we you know we would tell them you know if they start exhibiting things they might need a little more of these nutrients but um i think it's it's that profound and important and you know being a uh, a grandparent which obviously i was a parent before that i still have children but we have grandkids <laughs> and um you know it's it's like uh the the world my grandchildren are growing up in that of course we all still live in um has so many more of the negative epigenetic triggers like toxins and you know, EMS and all, all the other things that bother humans. Mm -hmm. 
they just need a lot more, uh, you know, care and feeding. And it takes, it, it takes a little more effort now to get, you know, really good food and really high nutrient dense food. But that's, that is your best medicine to start with. And sure, if you, if you have a pathologic expression of the genomic problem, you can always use nutrigenomics to treat it. But, yeah. you know, if you're thinking of your children and them growing up, you could head off a lot of trouble. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And yeah. it's it's really interesting, too, to that point. I mean, even the, the actual nutritious food that we're attempting to, to provide these children with, like how nutritious is it compared to the, the food that we used to eat? You know what I mean? Like, that's always a question I have as a parent, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's that's kind of what I was getting at with it takes a lot more effort. Yeah. Um, if you look at, like, USDA, you know, nutrient content of food and you go back enough years, um, my so my father's still living. He's 93. And what I always say is that the worst quality food vegetables and stuff he ate when he was growing up are more nutrient dense and cleaner than the best organic produce you can buy now. Um, and that may have something to do with him being as old as he is and healthy, (laughs) but, uh, you know, like, so, so when we look at people, cause you know, that to, just to wind it back, cause it's a nice logical, uh, question that comes up when people start thinking about it is like, well, so if these genetic things that get turned on by epigenetics, if, if they're genetic, it means my parents probably had them and my grandparents. So why weren't they, you know, why weren't they having to take methylated B vitamins and all this stuff? It's yeah. like, well, they didn't have a lot of the other negative epigenetic triggers and their food was actually so much more nutrient dense. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like they were supplementing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, you know, but the other side of that is, you know, that can be a real downer if you think about it. It's like, well, wow, are we just all, you know, kind of hosed because right. we, <laughs> our food isn't very good. Um, you know, so you don't, I mean, it's like, well, great. I can't go back a hundred years and live then. Um, so, you know, what we try and do within the bounds of, and anyone who has children or grandkids knows this, within the bounds of what they'll eat and all that stuff, um, mm-hmm. we, <clears throat> we try to introduce a lot of, colorful vegetables and high nutrient dense stuff as early as possible. So their taste kind of is at least accepting of that, Mm -hmm. you know, what they do later when they have their own thoughts or their own thoughts. But, um, so we try to do that. And then we do try in, you know, when we're thinking of high nutrient dense foods, you know, like let's just, I'm just cause we're kind of picking these out of the garden at this time of the year and, putting them in recipes, you know, like, um, peppers and, uh, brassicas, you know, and broccoli and all this stuff. And, um, those you can like, if you're not growing them yourself, you can at least put your, what I would call your organic produce money into those things because they're going to be the highest nutrient density Mm-hmm. And you're still you're still going to get really good epigenetic, you know, positive signals from it, mm-hmm. even though it's not as great as it was 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a lot of the mass produced uh, produce, et cetera, it, it's it just takes a lot. So, you know, but that means we also give the grandkids vitamins and stuff to help them out. <laughs> right, right. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's like, that makes me think of an entire spinoff where I think we should have you come on and just give some maybe parenting and grandparenting <laughs> advice. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I think that'd be really good. But well, I've got a million there, questions. There might actually, be family so. members that uh, uh, that would disagree. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, getting back to. Um, a little bit about cancer and, and and what you were talking about the redox balance of you know our, yeah. our cells and things like that and i know that you know a, a lot of times we've learned to maybe or been recommended to avoid certain antioxidant therapies like vitamin c like that's kind of been a big no-no for people who are actively receiving cancer treatment is that still something that holds true these days you know um in the minds of some people uh, in the oncology world, it it holds true. It, in the world of science, it doesn't hold true. And it's just, it's one of those kind of long-held beliefs because it made sense on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if just before I say anything overtly negative about anyone, um, <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you think of, as I work with a lot of, oncologists, whether they're in medical or radiation or surgical oncology and all this stuff. And, um, and I, I've done this a long time with patients. And if you think of the job of an oncologist of any type, um, but especially radiation and medical oncology, they have almost no margin for error with the therapies that they use. Mm-hmm. If you overdose someone's radiation or chemotherapy, you can kill them very, very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they live, uh, therapeutically in a very hypercritical, um, world of therapeutic index, which is very unforgiving. And so when you talk to them about introducing something that may even theoretically change that index, it's, uh, you know, it's a patient safety issue in their mind. Now, mm-hmm. what, um, the other side of that, though, is so I, I'm by that what I'm saying is I understand the reticence and I understand where the, you know, just cautious look. If I don't know, I'm just going to tell you, no, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know where that comes from. But the other side of it, you mentioned in the bio, the, the NIH study, and uh, that was, a, you know, a lot of work, but a lot of a lot of fun to do. A lot of what that did, at least in our world out here in the Northwest, is it opened up that discussion and we were able, because we were research partners with the University of Washington and Seattle Cancer Care and in some pretty conservative places, um, it allowed us to open up the discussion of, look, we have clinically used these things together in a certain way that's safe, et cetera. Um, for a long time. And there's actually research that shows that, you know, your chemotherapy and for instance, vitamin C are actually synergistic. And when I would start to present it that way, um, there's a spectrum, of course, all of us doctors have our own personalities and some people are just jerks and would say no, no matter what, but Mm -hmm. people with an open mind, for instance, you know, a chief of oncology at one of the centers said, gee, I never knew there was any research about this. Uh, thank you for sending that over. And now I don't have any problem, you know, doing uh, platinum drugs and vitamin C together. And I'll, I'll refer people for, you know, to you for, for that stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so it's, it's just that change of mindset from there's this black hole of nutrients and antioxidants, all this other stuff. I don't want to deal with it. I've got enough on my plate dosing the chemo. Um, so I'm just going to believe it's bad to, oh, gee, you know, this person has expertise different from mine. They know about antioxidants and they know about timing and all this stuff. And they appear to, you know, <laughs> they haven't killed any patients. So mm-hmm. let's <laughs> let's work right. together. Yeah. And that was, you know, one of the very best things that happened. So if, if uh, for example, if you go on my um, uh, professional site, the consult, dranderson.com there's uh, I think now the web people call it the free posts or something like that but there's a subsection of IV monographs and they're all free anybody can read them and we, we send a lot of those to oncologists well the most popular one is a survey of all the peer-reviewed research of vitamin C and chemotherapy and it's about 30 pages long, and there's there's some updates posted as well. But of all the chemos that have research, there's only one where you actually need to have the timing be different. Only one out of all of them. Everyone thought, oh, that's got to be time different and all this stuff. And there's really only one or two where maybe there's a negative effect. Everything else is a synergy. Mm-hmm. So when we started sending that data to the oncologists, um, again, if they were open-minded, they would often say, well, okay, you be, you do your specialty, which is, you know, giving these things to my patient to help them, you know, uh, survive their treatment. Mm-hmm. I'll do my thing with giving the chemo We'll work together. And, you know, the, the rewarding thing was even the, even the most cynical oncologists who never really overtly would say we were doing a good job, they would call often and say, I don't know if this is just something I'm seeing, but my patients I share with you guys live longer and they have much better quality of life. Yeah. And I would say, yeah, that's the point, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And exactly. so like this idea that, you know, antioxidants are somehow going to shut down all your chemo effect or whatever is it's, it's insanely stupid. Now, the world, especially of radiation oncology, has redoubled their efforts to tell people not to even eat berries or anything like like. So it's it goes back and forth. But um, from someone who's done it for a long time, and also someone who spent literally hundreds of hours researching nutrient and chemotherapy interactions in the real world, mm-hmm. um, it, in very few instances is it ever a problem. I mean, this is sort of it's why you want to work with somebody who does know about these things and right. can, you know, do some searches and, you know, cause in oncology now with, with biologic drugs coming out, we get a new one, you know, every two weeks and sure. you do kind of, and obviously there's not going to be a study on that and curcumin or whatever, <laughs> probably for a while. Right. So you do have to have somebody who can kind of look and say, yeah, you know, the monoclonal antibodies usually they, they're actually pretty synergistic with let's say curcumin and maybe, you know, uh, other other plants and probably okay with vitamin C, but we'll be careful of other stuff. So it's, it's sort of a pitch to work with somebody who's, you know, who does know where the potholes are, but the potholes that we all thought were like, you know, 75% of chemo is just going to stop if they get vitamin C. Mm-hmm. It's actually the other way around. It, it works better. People okay. live longer. 
great. Great. That's and switching gears a little bit to uh, talk about <laughs> diet. Um, you know, we, it's interesting. We talk about ketogenic diet quite a bit on this podcast, actually, and the role of ketosis as it relates to cancer therapy is is interesting. As it, you know, with respect to the literature, do you are you a proponent of utilizing the ketogenic diet in people who uh, are going through cancer therapy? Yeah, um, you know, that's something in well, either in the clinics I've had or there's some hospitals I consult with and. You know, so even though I don't, I don't have like primary hands-on patient care. I have a lot of secondary uh, <laughs> helping other doctors with their patient care mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. So I kind of get to see a lot of trends. And what we um, would talk to patients about with respect to diet was, um, I, I actually turned it into a graphic that was sort of like a pyramid. So there was a, you know, okay, start here and you know, work your way up. Um, So with the exception of somebody where they have no time, you know, like their late stage metastatic cancer, they just got diagnosed and they really need to buckle down and do a therapeutic diet today. Mm -hmm. With the exception of that group, which we can talk about, Mm -hmm. um, we would talk about with people is the first step in working on your diet is cleaning it up. Mm -hmm. So you, you cannot work up to a therapeutic diet like a keto or, or a modified fasting or low calorie or, or whatever therapeutic diet if you're eating a bunch of negative epigenetic triggers like toxins and pesticides and coloring and other poisons. Mm-hmm. Um, so our first goal, because a lot of people, like you think of the standard North American um you start to talk to them about doing keto diet and cleaning their diet up. They've never even eaten a clean diet, let alone thought about their macros or anything. Sure, like true. their eyes will glaze over it. It's true. like, you, you know, we got to work into this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would tell them, look, if we're going to work towards keto or we're going to work towards a modified Mediterranean, or we're going to work towards a, a fasting based, you know, cyclic diet, um, it makes no sense to have whatever you're eating be full of poison. And so the first layer was always clean it up. The next step actually, because of the data, and this is one of those like happy, you know, kind of kismet things that happened with the first book outside the box. Um, Right as we were doing final edits and it was going to go to publication, the study about the the human study about intermittent fasting with breast cancer patients came out because that was one of the problems with intermittent fasting was a lot of fasting research is animal based and this and that Mm -hmm. people, you know, have trouble with that. So this real time research thing came out with breast cancer survivors and the, and and here's the beauty of this. Like you could do so much more than what they did, but for research, you just change one, you know, parameter. So they took breast cancer survivors and they randomized them and one group ate whatever they want at whatever schedule they wanted. The other group ate whatever they wanted, but they had a 13-hour fasting window every 24 hours where they just drank water. And, you know, you're asleep for seven or eight of it, so it's not too terribly hard. Mm -hmm. And at 13 hours, they actually had one-third less breast cancer recurrence at five years, and they didn't change their diet at all. They just changed the interval. Mm -hmm. So what we would talk to pay, we'd tell them that story and you know, give them the paper if they want to read it. But we basically said, look, if you clean all the junk out of your diet, that's, that's adding poison, 
And then the next tier of the pyramid is to do 13 to 15 hours of uh, intermittent fasting a day. And you can coach almost anyone into doing that. Um, then everything from there up becomes much more therapeutic. So if we're headed towards doing keto, and with a lot of our patients that had aggressive cancers like, uh, you know, pretty much all pancreatic cancer is aggressive, late stage ovarian, um, you know, wildly metastatic other disease, we if they would do it, we would often do an induction, and after they did those basic things, then move them to keto. Um, and some people, like the way we wound up doing it, because this is what we found over time, was we would do the dietary part, and let's say we're going to do keto, we would add uh, ketone salts mm-hmm. to boost their, their ketone levels. And then we would do other stuff to augment that therapeutically. Um, we would have some people, however, who just couldn't do, like they just, uh, they, it was just not a possibility. Mm-hmm. And so what we would show them, it's the same pyramid, just the top part's different <laughs> with the therapeutic mm-hmm. thing, is we would, instead of an induction into ketosis, we would do either a fasting induction, you know, like a 48, 72-hour fast. Not a lot of people took us up on that, but that was an option. Or we would do actually a uh, clean uh, raw veg induction for a week. Hmm. And so they were only eating raw veg and they were doing intermittent fasting. Everyone did intermittent fasting. Yeah. Um, and then, and they would say, well, okay, you know, if my options are keto, which I will not do, or this, I'll do this. Right. Why the induction? Well, the idea is to get your metabolism's attention. And it literally, like if you look at the research on doing inductions into ketosis or into a raw veg low calorie diet, it's almost the same outcomes. It's just to the patient, it's different. They feel like they're eating different food. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the veg side, what we would do with folks is then after the week of induction, we would move them to what I call modified Mediterranean, meaning you take the grains out, uh, make sure the fats are clean. Um, and you look, you really do look at the macro balance, but it's a lot of vegetables and, you know, clean protein fat sources. Um, and, and those were the two that we had the most like traction therapeutically, like getting people to, uh, you know, having their diet actually make a difference. And I think the important thing we also saw was if the person was, you know, I, I, I envision, I have certain friends who I've known for a long time and you know telling them to change all of their diet just they they would be dead long before they would change their diet so (laughs) if if we could tie into the idea of at least clean it up and do this 13 plus hour overnight fast and then do some basic good choices like even that is terribly therapeutic yeah um now if you came in and it was like we have one shot to turn the ship, uh, we would we would have that heart to heart and say, look, you know, I think for your cancer, keto is going to be the way to go. We'll help you with it. We need to, you know, we're going to monitor you and do, you know, we'll have a monitoring uh, uh, chronometer software for your ketones and all this stuff. Uh, and, and they would get that. They would know, you know, look, we've got one pass to try and stop this. Yeah. Um, but everybody else, it's sort of like you have to 
you have to start with what they will do and what's realistic and then just do the very best within those confines. Yeah. Yeah. So and in a way that's yeah. that's not all that different than than treating a lot of our chronic diseases. Is you know, you're you're doing a lot of hand holding and you're starting with where where the patient is. And it depends in most cases anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, every, <laughs> whether it's cancer or any other chronic illness, you know, it, what I always would tell people, like, if I look back over, let's just pick a short time, 30 years, and I say, what is in common with the patients that did better with therapies or not? It's There's three basics that, you know, everyone doesn't want to do, but they have to. And it, the better they do them, the better that they their outcomes are. And it's uh, um, food, obviously, and stuff we just talked about. And then the middle uh, pillar, I would call it, is is muscle metabolism. So mm. enhancing muscle metabolism, diminishing fat metabolism. Because whether you've got fibromyalgia or cancer or whatever, mm-hmm. the more your muscles are metabolizing, the more signals that go out that are positive uh, and become anti-inflammatory and you know, all that stuff, mm-hmm. the more you have fat metabolism, the more, you know, more inflamed, more bad epigenetic triggers, et cetera. And then the third one is really brain, uh, brain mind. Um, So not just like how you're thinking, but what you're letting in and how you're looking at your disease, how you're, you know, are you a victim of it or are you actually in charge and, you know, come what may you're, you're the person in charge of your life and your body. Um, So those, it, it, and what I would tell people is you can spend a lot of money on cool therapies and they'll work for a while. But if you're not fixing the foundation, it, it, it eventually falls through and you might as well put your, put your efforts into making it sure. all work. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And I, I recognize Dr. Anderson, you just outlined those, the three pillars of cancer therapy and, and in your latest book, cancer, the journey from diagnosis to empowerment, you actually talk about these three pillars and why they're important. Can, can you tell us, why just the concept of empowerment makes such a difference? Yeah. Um, well, the, <clears throat> the, the newest book um, really came about in that interval after uh, Dr. Stengler and I published Outside the Box. And I was very, uh, I was very heavily involved in, a, in a, a clinic and a hospital that treated mostly cancer, but also chronically ill people. And um, I was involved at the level of trying to uh, mentor the physicians in, you know, how do you manage these patients so they get the best outcomes and all this. And I realized that while Mark and I in the first book, Outside the Box, certainly we talk about mind body and we talk about other stuff. um, One of the big, you know, uh, big stumbling blocks that, that every patient has, whether it's cancer or chronic illness or whether it's the patient or their loved one, is the diagnosis is so shocking to them Mm. that that puts them in a mental space that can be very unhealthy. And, you know, the, the book is really, um, the book is actually very agnostic to how you treat your cancer. It's all about whatever you're doing to treat your cancer. That's sort of the externalization of the cancer journey. It's the internal part that kind of makes or breaks it. Mm -hmm. And, Mm-hmm. The goal is not to ignore that it's, you know, I mean, everyone's freaked out when they get a bag diet. Nobody wants a bag diet, especially cancer. Mm-hmm. And no one wants their loved one to have that. So, of course, we're going to be upset in the beginning and whatever we 
migrate to depression or anxiety or anger or whatever. Um, but the book basically said, look, that's, that's cool. That's how we humans are. The important part is that we see that there's a way to get from whatever your initial emotions are to being empowered, which is, you know, like I say, it's not ignoring that you have cancer. It's not ignoring how bad cancer can be, but it's realizing that you are the person in charge of this vessel, your body that you live in. And you can either be the most in charge and the most, um, the most, uh, part of the solution you can be, or you can be permissive and a victim and angry and whatever, and really, you know, be part of, uh, not having a good outcome. And, um, you know, there's thankfully in modern times, there's more and more research showing that the more empowerment a patient has, especially with cancer, the better their quality of life, definitely. And usually the better their length of life and the treatments work better. You know, because our mind is a huge epigenetic, uh, mm, epigenetic like radio sense. Right, right, so it, right. it is that important. That's what the whole book's about. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that makes a lot of sense, and you know, it makes me think about a lot of the 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 verbiage that we use around cancer and cancer therapy, and and how much of it is about you know fighting. And, you know, you have to, you have to fight this cancer, you have to, you know, overcome it, things like that. But you talk about your, in your book about things like gratitude and embracing and abandoning outcomes. Like how have you used those concepts in treating your cancer patients as compared to maybe a little bit of how we tend to approach it? (laughs) Yeah, it's, um, and, and, you know, I think, um, I keep coming back to this, but the, the book is very accepting of wherever we're at, whether it's the, you know, the practitioner or the patient or the loved one. And we all have to realize that within our own personality, we have a way of looking at external threats. And that's kind of what we perceive cancer as. So whether you're the doctor or the patient or the loved one, the first thing you have to do is assess, how does this make me feel and act? So if I look at cancer as an external threat, I am more likely to want to fight it. Mm-hmm. And I'm more likely to want to, you know, push back and, and, you know, eradicate all those things, which is not intrinsically bad ideas. Mm-hmm. Right. But if we get too far into that, especially like as the physician languaging it to the patient, you have to have a balance because if you start down that road, and that's the only thing you're talking about then the patient starts to see that their disease process is outside their control and must be fought and opposed and all of this. And so it's sort of like, you know, what I would tell patients and families is you, you know, the the treatment for your cancer is not being done to you. It's being done with you. Hmm. And if you feel that treatment is only being done to you, it allows you to divorce yourself, uh, you know, from being an active participant and, and actually putting, you know, the mental and emotional and physical and other things into it that are needed from your end. Mm-hmm. Um, so the movement is, and, and I, you know, and, and I will say, and you've probably uh, both heard this, um, there are some people, there's, there's kind of trigger words around well, everything in the world, but, <laughs> but around cancer, uh, everybody gets triggered by everything. But, um, but, you know, 
it's okay to want to fight with the cancer or oppose it or try and, you know, kill it or, you know, whatever. Um, but some people, especially people who have walked through cancer where it ended in the death of a person that they loved, they will get very triggered by the idea of, you know, if you start to have very aggressive fighting type terminology around cancer care and it's reasonable because what they saw through that unfortunate experience of walking through, a, you know, with a loved one was if you're only focusing on fight and kill, you minimize the effect that that person has and the control they have over their life. And so you really have to be balanced. And like, there'd be a lot of things I would do clinically that would be very anti-cancer, but they're done in this context that that's, you know, that's a chunk of what we do, but we also got to take care of you. Um, and the way I would tell patients, because you know how you talk to patients and you, it's it's almost like being a comedian. You try jokes out and they, they bomb. And, mm-hmm. you know, after a few years, you figure out which things patients tie into. Well, this is the one I finally settled on. It's not really a joke, but it's mm-hmm. sort of um, like that. I would just say, look, OK, patient was especially if they were really wrapped up in the kill idea, <laughs> I would say. I know what kind of cancer you are, you have, I know all the stats and the data about it and all that. And, and I'm not leaving that out, but I'm actually more interested in the healthy cells that are you and, and not as much interested in your cancer because the only thing you have from keeping the cancer, you know, uh, from progressing is the healthy part of you. Hmm. So our goal is to work with the healthy cells make them very resistant to being recruited to be cancer cells and all that. And while we're doing that, we can beat up on the cancer. But if we ignore the healthy part of you, which, you know, standard oncology, and again, this is not a slam. This is just the way oncology is. Standard oncology is about fighting and killing. And Mm -hmm. so they are 99.5% interested in the cancer cells and their biology and what they do. Great. But that leaves like, you know, the whole rest of the pie, you know, the right. the other uh, 99% uh, of, of you that doesn't have cancer that needs care and treatment. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of the way I would talk to people. And it would, it would just reframe it. It's like, neither is a bad idea, yeah. but we can't be all about one and not the other. And here's why. So I, I don't know if that no, answers that's, too that's, many questions, no, but that's, that's that's what I did. <laughs> it's so profound, that yeah. mental-emotional aspect. And your entire book, I've actually been through your book, and the entire book kind of weaves through actual specific stories, and I just find it, you know, the empowerment part of it and the mental-emotional part is just so profound. And it's so important to, to really bring to our clinical tool belt uh, to because we're working with people at the end of the day. And this mm-hmm. is, you know, we have to understand yeah. what's going on and what, you know, these different facets that are going to encourage the therapies or maybe sort of help to, or prohibit the therapies that we're using. So I really appreciate that. And uh, I'm going to let you go here soon. But before I do that, I have one last question for you, Dr. Anderson. Um, and this, right. is, this is a question <laughs> we call the fireball because uh, the it, it's fireball. a little bit of an off-topic question. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about Seattle recently and uh, how much I miss Seattle. Homesick. And um, I, did, I wanted to ask you this. It, do you have a favorite restaurant in Seattle? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, there, as you know uh, from living here, there, there's a ton. And mm-hmm. um, one of the 
bummers of COVID yeah. life has been some of my restaurants that I like are no longer in existence uh-huh. and some are just kind of too hard to get into, you mm-hmm. know, and, and to see. Um, but uh, so I will preface this by saying I have been told, I, I tell people I have broad tastes and, and then people say, no, you have no taste. <laughs> uh, but I like almost every type of food if it is done well. And one of the things I really appreciate about the Northwest and the Seattle area is uh, if if I want uh, an you know an Asian spin on cuisine, I've got a million places that are great. Mm-hmm. If I want um, you know something in the end of you know um, meat and uh, mm-hmm. you know meat and Western sort of food, we've got a lot of that. And if I want something that's sort of uh, you know Nouvelle cuisine, I can find that. So. I, I would hate to pick just one. What I what I like about Seattle is I've got options and and I've visited cities that don't have that variety and it's it's it's, it's fine for a visit, but it'd be a bummer to live there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we're so grateful to you, Dr. Anderson. Thank you so much for the time. We want to encourage all of our listeners to go to your website, consultdranderson.com. Check out your podcast, Medicine and Health with Dr. Paul. And, of course, to, to buy your, your new book, Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment. And we're just so honored you spent time with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was yeah. great. That was great. I love talking with Dr. Anderson. He's, he's fantastic. He's just so kind. But you know what? He really didn't answer the question about favorite restaurant in Seattle. Do you have a favorite restaurant in Seattle, or is it one of those places where you really can't have one? Uh, it's it's hard, man. There's a lot of good places yeah? to eat in Seattle. But okay. uh, if I had to pick one, there's this place in the University District, the University ahead. of Washington area, called UD, as they say, mm-hmm. in the Seattle area. Uh, it's called Thai Tom. It's what? a Thai restaurant. Hole Thai in Tom? the wall. Yeah, hole-in-the-wall Thai restaurant, lines out the door, down the street. Hmm. Quick story about that. There was one time where I was actually waiting in line outside, and this line was, like, down the street. But doesn't it always rain? Were you getting rained on? Probably. Okay. And somebody walked by, and they were like, you know there's other Thai restaurants in the (laughs) area? And it's like, no. No, man, you don't know. There's not. That speaks volumes. Yeah. Okay, well, what are we doing next time? Next time on The Lab Report, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Yeah, muscle-centric medicine. I'm going to get me some of those muscles one of these days. Maybe she can help you. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Okay, worst Halloween candy ever. Yeah, I got it. I got candy it. Candy corn? No, I like candy corn, actually. Oh. Uh, there is this candy that comes in orange and black wrappers. Okay. They're called peanut butter kisses, I guess. Huh. And they're terrible. They're absolutely <laughs> terrible. Uh, I had this article pulled up, actually. This is from a few years ago where there's a city of High Point, North Carolina, that posted this on their Facebook page. All right, everybody. We're giving uh-huh. you a one-week notice as you prepare for trick-or-treaters to remind y'all that by <laughs> order of the city of High Point Emperor of Acceptable Candy, <laughs> these are banned. No one wow. likes them. Don't <laughs> give them out. The city wrote on its Facebook page. Oh, I have a long list of things that should be banned.